Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Murder and Misery, our true crime podcast. We are your hosts, my name is Heather, and I know absolutely nothing about true crime. And my name is Jillian, and I consider myself somewhat of a true crime expert. Yes, Jill is our resident true crime expert. And we created this podcast so that Jill could teach me about all things true crime, both locally and nationally, and to take you guys along for the journey, so that if you too know nothing about true crime, you can learn something. Or maybe hear another perspective about stories you already know. So before we begin, this episode contains mention of abduction and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. This case starts on a cold winter night on Saturday, February 21st of 1987 at a Super 8 hotel. Working the front desk of the hotel was 41-year-old Vicki Heath. A little backstory on Vicky: she was a beautiful lady and a mother to a son and a daughter who were older and starting off their adult lives. Vicky recently had gotten engaged as well, so she was excited to start a new chapter in her life and get married to her fiancé. She spent the majority of her life in Hardinsburg, Kentucky, but her fiancé had recently decided to move to Radcliffe, Kentucky, which was about 30 miles from where she previously lived. She also had decided to pick up a job at the hotel to make a few extra bucks, so this Super 8 was located right off of I-65 in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Elizabethtown has grown a lot in recent years, but in 1987, even though it was slightly bigger than Troy at 18,000 people, population, it wasn't much. They were right off the highways, so they had a lot of semi-drivers, a couple of fast food restaurants, and two hotels. Mostly just residential houses, though. So back to this night, Vicky was working the overnight shift. The hotel was about half capacity, and the manager had left Vicky there around 11 p.m. Nothing seemed abnormal or odd until 6.38 a.m. the following morning when police received a call from a concerned guest. He was at the motel, and he said that when they went to check out that morning at the hotel, the lobby was a complete mess. It was in total disarray, and... The front desk clerk, Vicky, was nowhere to be found. Shortly after, when an officer arrived at the hotel, he said it, quote, looked like there had been a brawl between a group of people, end quote. He noted that furniture had been overturned and items from the front desk had been thrown all over the floor. The payphone in the lobby had been completely ripped off of the wall, and most importantly, Vicky was nowhere to be found. At this point, the officer had called in backup. He initially believed a group of men had gotten into a fight and that Vicky possibly had been hurt in the tussle. The officers then carefully searched the interior of the motel with no luck. Unfortunately, as they made their way outside, they found Vicky behind the dumpsters. Vicky was lying on her back in the mud and snow with what appeared to be a bullet wound to her head. What the heck? Yeah. Her sweater and plaid skirt were torn and mangled. There were a set of footprints leading from her body to the parking lot where they ended and tire tracks had begun. Vicky's autopsy showed she was beaten, robbed, sodomized, and then shot in the head two times with a thirty-eight handgun. They were only able to recover one bullet from the ground, and Vicky was discovered a few minutes before sunrise, so the foot and tire prints quickly melted as it was only one-tenth of an inch of snow. This made it impossible to get impressions, but they were able to find DNA on Vicky's clothes and via a rape kit as well. It was initially believed that Vicky's murder 
was intended to be a robbery, but when Vicky fought back, the attacker changed plans. It was then thought that it was a targeted crime and a crime of passion, but since they didn't have much to go on, they chalked it up to a one-off event. The case then went cold for years until April of 2010. That's a long time. Yeah. They had a DNA match to another crime. So this takes us back to the early hours of Friday, March 3rd, 1989, at the Days Inn in Maryville, Indiana. This is where 24-year-old Margaret Mary Gill, also known as Peggy, was working. Peggy was a college student who picked up a job as an overnight auditor for the hotel to help pay for her school. She was a quiet, soft-spoken, shy woman and the youngest of four siblings. She was living with her parents in Ross, New Township, Indiana, where she grew up. Peggy's boss, Betty Pierce, said that because Peggy was shy, she preferred the overnight shifts of 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. because the hotel was less busy at these times. The night before she went into work on Thursday, March 2nd, Peggy spent most of the evening with her dad, who was having his 51st birthday the next day. Peggy baked him a his favorite cake, and once it got closer to 11 p.m., her dad asked if she planned on working that night. Peggy replied with a laugh, what do you think? Then she hugged her dad, said, happy early birthday, old man, and little did he know this would be the last time he saw his daughter. That's tragic. I know. I don't know what it is with our last couple cases around, like, birthdays and horrible things happening, but it makes it extra sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Peggy then made her way to work at the Days End, right off of I-65. This location in Maryville was considered the lowest risk Days End location based off of not only its location, but also the design setup of the hotel, which was a U-shape, with the lobby and office right in the middle. It was also well lit and right in the open of most of the rooms, instead of being tucked in like other locations. Because of this low risk assessment, There were no precautions in regards to security from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. each night. Peggy was the only one working, and she had a bullet-resistant window in front of her where she could still check in or out any customer. I think the bullet-resistant window was due to the fact that the hotel had been robbed three times prior to this night. Okay, low risk, but continuously robbed. Right. (laughs) Makes sense. Um, Though this was considered a low-crime area, it is said that robberies and attacks were prevalent at motels and hotels between the 70s through the 90s, probably because tourists, but also because the use of cell phones and video security was not as prevalent. But back to Peggy, she spoke with her boss, Betty, around 12.30 a.m., and then between 1.30 and 1.40 a.m., she checked in her last guest. About 20-ish minutes later, a college student came into the hotel to check into a room, but left shortly after because no one was around to check him in, so he went to a different hotel nearby. At 5 a.m., when Peggy didn't call Betty, which was a protocol due to, to do every morning, Betty began to worry. She said if it were any other clerk, she wouldn't have thought twice about it and thought maybe they just forgot to check in, but this was unusual for Peggy to miss a call. Betty then tried to get in contact with Peggy, but she was unsuccessful. She called the police to report her missing, and this took place at 5.51 a.m. Right after 6 a.m., when police arrived on scene, they pulled in to notice a couple hotel customers that were preparing to leave. They told police no one was at the front desk to check them out, though. 
When police entered the lobby and Peggy was nowhere to be found, they phoned her parents. They then got a description of her car, which was a green Plymouth Valair. Police noted that it was still in the parking lot of the hotel. This was when police thought that this was probably a targeted abduction, so they told Peggy's parents to stay near the phone in case she or her abductor called. Her mother stayed back to stay near the phone while her father sped off towards the hotel. This time, as more officers were arriving on scene, they hadn't contained it yet, but upon further investigation, they found no signs of struggle, and Peggy's keys and purse were still behind the front desk. After finding this, police now were assuming that she had just left her post to attend to something else in the hotel, or possibly had even went to take a nap in one of the rooms. I guess that's something people did. I don't know. I've never worked in a hotel. But police then waited for the manager, Betty Pierce, to arrive. When she got there at 6.30 a.m., they then started to search the hotel. They found the cash drawer was pried open and money was gone. You don't think that with the string of robberies, they wouldn't have checked it first, right. which seemed really off to me. But police then went to a vacant part of the hotel on the second floor. Once officers reached the hallway, at the end, laying next to the fire exit, was the body of Peggy. No. I know. She had been sexually assaulted stripped of her clothes, and shot twice behind her left ear with a twenty-two pistol. So her... somebody's on, like, a killing rampage, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Her killer had folded and laid her uniform next to her body. Imagine, I just feel so bad, like, I can't imagine, like, that's her dad's birthday and that's how he's spending it. Which, like, obviously any day, but Did I'm just... Did the police go up there without him? Or did he have to see that? I don't know. But I, I will say that it sounded like he was my... Like, he sounded, he, he sounded like he was, like, mine and yours kind of dad, where it's, like, police were, like, hey, like, stay back here. And he's, like, no, like, I'm going to the hotel. So, I don't know. I don't but know. I'm sure if he had gotten there by that time, he was probably searching with them. But it didn't say. Yeah. For sure. Um, hopefully, honestly not, though. I feel though. bad because, I mean, obviously, this is a horrible thing to happen any day. But I feel like he could never be joyous on his birthday again. Right. I know. That's kind of sucks. So, it was after this that police opened a full investigation. It was noted that the money drawer had $179 missing, literally taking somebody's life for less than $200. They were able to get fingerprints, however. It doesn't seem like this was just a robbery, though. No. Which, because the first one wasn't just a robbery, either. Yeah, but then they didn't, they didn't know that they were even connected until 2010. No, I know. I'm saying you said taking somebody's life for less than $200. He didn't just take her life for $200. Right. He was a sicko. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, they were, however, able to get fingerprints, but they matched no one in the system. A few hours into the investigation, they learned that Remington, Indiana, about 52 miles south on I-65, another night auditor from the Days End Hotel had been abducted. This was 34-year-old Jean Marie Gilbert. Jean was described as a beautiful, outgoing, bubbly blonde who was raised in Jasper County, Indiana her whole life. Reading about her, she reminded me a lot of myself because family was very important to her, so she never wanted to be too far away from her parents. Even though things had been rough with her recently getting a divorce from the father of her two children, Jean went from a dual-income home to a single-income home. She didn't want to depend on anyone else, so she got another job 
This was on top of her already full-time job as a bookkeeper at Carter Oil Supply. Her part-time job was at Days Inn in Remington, Indiana. Just like Peggy, Jean was also studying business at a local college on top of raising her kids and working two jobs. She was actually attending a couple college classes with her daughter, who was 17 years old at the time, and taking classes before she graduated high school. Remington is a small town, similar to Winfield, but back then it was mainly farmland and small mom-and-pop shops. Nothing you'd think of a crime-ridden town, and from what everyone said, it wasn't. It was just a small town where everyone knew everyone. Jean was actually not supposed to be working this night, on March 2nd of 1989, but she switched shifts with a co-worker so she could attend the final game her daughter was cheering at. Jean was supposed to work from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. that night. Her co-worker, who worked second shift as a clerk, left at midnight. This was when her shift was over. Jean spent most of her time doing homework in a re- registration office as it was a slow night at the hotel. It's going to get a bit confusing here with the times because even though they were close in distance, the days in where Peggy worked was in a different time zone than the one where Jean worked. So Jean is an hour ahead. Okay. So on Friday, March 3rd, 1989, at 5.30 a.m., Jean called a guest for a wake-up call. The guest didn't note anything out of the normal when talking to her, but she was a stranger, so honestly, how would they know? By 7 a.m., police had received multiple calls from people trying to check out of the hotel with no employee in sight. A couple minutes after this, between 7.02 and 7.05 a.m., a school bus driver called the police to report a nude dead body on a county road in White County. The day's end was in Jasper County. This went right to the state troopers, and all the while they started investigating this dead body, the county police and Jasper are still trying to locate missing Jean. At this time, it is 7.45 a.m., and Sharon, who's the manager at the day's end, arrived. We're unsure who entered first, the employees or the police, but I think since the lobby was locked and only the manager had the extra key, that no one else did until the manager got there, but I'm not sure. At this time, though, they noted that the cash drawer was pried open and $247 is missing, along with Jean. The side office where she was working is open, and all of her stuff is still there. Shortly after this, at 7.50, police located the body that was called in, though it's not clear if farmers had already found it and were also waiting for the police, or if police had to search for it. Um, We're not sure exactly what happened, but we do know sometime between 5.30 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jean was attacked and abducted. Police believe a guest entered the lobby while she was still working on her homework in the side room. So when Jean got up to talk with him out of the room, the suspect attacked Jean and forced her into his vehicle. We now know the suspect then went on I-65, exiting on 188 towards Brookston, Indiana. And at some point, he sexually assaulted her and shot her three times, once in the back of the head and twice behind her left ear with a 22 handgun. She was then left in a frozen ditch nude. What we do know is that around 6.30 a.m., a farmer nearby reported hearing gunshots, and around the same time, another school bus driver saw a tan-colored new Toyota van heading westbound near I-43. DNA evidence was later recovered, proving that this was the same man who killed Peggy just hours prior, but that was it. 
They had nothing, no description, no witnesses, nothing to try and stop this killer who had taken three lives. Just like that, the case went cold until nine months later, when on Tuesday, January 2nd of 1990, a 21-year-old female night auditor was working alone at a day's end in Columbus, Indiana, right off of I-65. The time is about 5 a.m. The clerk sees a man enter the lobby and look around for a few minutes before approaching her at the desk to ask for change to use the cigarette machine. Once she gave him change, she asked if he was a trucker, to which he replied yes. Then he asked for good places to eat, and after some small talk and some suggestions, he left. Only to return shortly after, with a coffee in hand, he asked for change for sodas. As soon as the clerk opened the drawer, the man threw his hot coffee in her face and jumped over the counter, grabbing her by her shirt. He said, quote, I won't hurt you if you keep your mouth shut. Give me all the money, end quote. Once her eyes focused, she saw that he was holding a six-inch knife next to her. She quickly gave him all the money in the register, and he asked if there was any more. She told him there was some in the back office, in the safe. He then demanded that she give that, along with the money out of her purse and her golden rings as well. He then made her go into the office and led her down a hallway to an entryway where he sexually assaulted her. After this, he got even more hostile and forced her in the freezing weather, where he told her to keep walking and not to turn around. And she did just that. Even crossing an embankment filled with ice and water up to her knees, she was sure he was behind her with his knife the whole time. She walked nearly a quarter of a mile until she saw a trailer home and bolted and frantically banged on, on the door until a woman answered and took her inside to call the police. She was then taken to the hospital where they did a rape kit and she was able to give the police a description of her attacker. He was a stereotypical-looking blue-collared trucker wearing blue jeans with a blue and black plaid button-up flannel shirt. He was wearing a dark stocking cap and had straight, medium-length brown and gray hair. She said his hair looked matted and greasy as if he hadn't showered in days. He also had a gray beard with some brown in it and a mustache. His hair was described as long and stringy. He was about six foot and looked to be in his mid-30s or mid-40s. He was described as having bright green, almost yellow eyes and a lazy eye on his right side. He was also wearing a Band-Aid under his right eye. He was also white. I don't know why I didn't write that down. He was white. Um, police then released a sketch, but unfortunately, the case went cold again. With some speculating it was mishandled due to political reasoning, as a Donald Glover was considered a suspect until DNA cleared him in 2001. I'm not going much into that because, one, he didn't do it, and two, I can't really find anything on Donald Glover. Um, I did look it up, but all that comes up is Childish Gambino. Yeah. I was so I even tried looking up like Donald Glover, I-65 killer, and nothing comes up that yeah. says anything about who that, I don't know, maybe he was like some political person down there. I'm not 100% sure, but they know he didn't do it. He was ruled out. So yeah. Okay. They, they did have other leads during this time, but they all came to a dead end. It took nearly a year for the DNA to come back, and the investigators said it was due to her wanting to remain anonymous, which is why I didn't have, like, a whole backstory on her, because you don't know who she was, mm -hmm. which I totally get it, because I wouldn't either. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, it seemed like something sketchy was happening with that investigation, 
and the case went cold again until 2013 when CODIS got another match to the string of crimes caused by who we now know as the I-65 killer. There was not much information on this, but we do know that there was a woman working in a hotel who was robbed, sexually assaulted, and stabbed in Rochester, Minnesota in 1991. She luckily survived and gave a similar description at the time, saying he was a white male, six foot to six foot two, had green eyes, and also described his right eye as being lazy. He also had grayish brown hair and was wearing a flannel shirt and blue jeans. Same guy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) With my little knowledge. Yeah. And I don't know if it was the same, but like same clothes, but they were literally described wearing the same clothes a year apart. So after this discovery, the FBI officially classified the I-65 killer as a serial killer. This killer evaded crime and punishment going without being identified for over three decades. That was until Tuesday, April 5th of 2022. Are you joking? No. Tuesday, April what? Yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah. Whoa! That's crazy! Right. This is when police announced at a press press conference... This is the kind of true crime podcast I need. Your entire... <laughs> like, you just lit up. <laughs> um, yesterday. That's, that's insane. Yes. Yeah, so they announced yesterday that they have positively identified the I-65 killer as Harry Edward Greenwell. Unfortunately, he died in 2013 at the age of 68. So he did get away with his crimes for his entire life. That makes me mad. I know. I know. I just got you really excited and then I just crushed it. (laughs) It's okay. But he... um, I do not like him, Harry Greenwell. You're not cool. No. You're Uh, a bad guy horrible and i i mean like not sad that he's dead but at the same time i really wish he would have held out so that he could have at least How been did charged they find out they found out through genetic dna testing and ancestry.com with his kids did he i don't have kids see that's the issue i don't know a lot about it since it only came out yesterday but what i do know you know what well i can't tell you if he had kids because his obituary this is how i know you procrastinate Oh, because I started it yesterday? Yeah. It was perfect. Well, I had actually had one, a different one that I was going to do, but then when I saw this in one of the Murderino groups, I was like, mm, nope, scratch that one. I only had a like couple paragraphs of it done anyway. I was like, scratch that one. We're starting this one. So then I started this one last night. I think it's great. I love the timing. Very cool. Harry Edward Greenwell, 68, of New Albany, Iowa, passed away on January 31st, 2013 in Lansing, Iowa. Harry... I haven't read this yet. I just saw that it was there. I haven't actually read it. Well, we also have to keep in mind that whoever wrote this did not know that he was a murderer. Right. Or a serial killer, rather. He, Harry was a man with many friends who loved his straight-up attitude and his willingness to help anyone. Mm, Okay. Uh His spirit will live on. His spirit will live on in many by good deeds he's offered. (laughs) Who wrote this? I'm telling you, yeah, but I know that they didn't know because they did not know. I know that they didn't know, but like, I feel like they're probably looking back at this like, uh, oh, he had a wife. Oh, and kids. Okay. As an employee of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, providing public safety for 30 years, he retired February 2010. Harry enjoyed, Harry enjoyed organic gardening, selling his organic products at the local farmer's market, traveling, reading, traveling, 
wordsmithing, avid college sports fan, and selective winning... Oh, and selecting winning thoroughbred horses. Interesting. Horse, horse so racing. he's into betting on horses. Um, born on December 9th, 1944 in Louisville to Paul and Dorothy Greenwell. He is survived by his wife. I'm not going to say their names because, sure. you know, his wife, son, daughter. He either had two or five children. Either had two kids and five grandkids or he had five kids. Yeah, it's not very clear. Right. It's written really weird, but he did have seven, seven siblings and four nieces, one nephew, two great nephews, and one great niece. And he was Catholic. <laughs> Love that for him. Yeah. So, oh, I'm oh. so sorry, but like the ad, you know how sometimes they'll have like ads on websites? Yes. It's for Ancestry. What a coinky dink there. That's and I know funny. we're like joking around about this, but like I genuinely have no regrets that this man is dead. He was a horrible person. I do, however, feel horrible for his family because I, I doubt that they had any idea. Yeah, I'm sure that they didn't. And so waking up and finding out that your husband and your father and your brother was like some horrible, disgusting serial killer, that had to have been terrible. Yeah. I my can't dad even imagine. My dad rarely leaves the house, so I, I'm not worried about that. Yeah, but still. And I feel like it's almost worse because he's dead. Because, like, they've been mourning this, like, great person in their eyes. Right. And now they're finding out that he had this other side to him mm-hmm. that was horrific. And I'm sure that that is, has to be really confusing. Right. I, I will add, though, that he did have a criminal background. He actually... In 1982, he was arrested for burglary in Iowa and escaped police custody twice. In the same year, he was sentenced to prison in Iowa, where he was released in 1983. He was also, there were some other crimes in Kentucky that he was caught for prior to his death, where he served, that were, like, violent crimes. So, obviously, they knew he had a past, but not everybody that has been to prison, obviously, is some horrible person. So they, they knew that he wasn't, like, an angel, but still, I don't think that... Yeah, I don't think that they knew the extent of what had happened. Oh, definitely past. not. Definitely not. Um, I can't imagine that somebody would know that and be able to, like, carry on regularly. Right. Yeah, like the Golden State Killer, which is actually how they found... No, I mean his family. I doubt that he ever told his wife. I can't imagine that if he told his wife he did all of that, that she would just be able to continue on. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, with the Golden State Killer, remember, he was living with his daughter and his granddaughter, and they had literally no idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying, like, the Golden State Killer where he had told them, and I was like, I don't remember the part where he told them. No, like, he... We don't... We don't want to assume that they said... I doubt that that they had any idea. Um, It didn't seem like they had any idea because she said that... Um, she was confused and the person that she knew was a great father and a great grandfather. I remember her saying that. Right. And I feel like a lot of denial goes into this. Um, but police say that they are taking this information and actively investigating additional assaults, robberies, and murders that occurred in the Midwest that they think he may be connected to. That's crazy. Uh, his, well, survivors of his victims and his victims... I guess they were all victims, but people that were affected by his ways attended the press conference. Um, The one who made a statement 
was Jean's daughter, Kimberly. Uh, she is now an attorney, so. Oh, hell yeah. I know, like, <laughs> and I, I don't know if that had anything to do with her mother being murdered and her, like, I know a lot of times that, like, affect people where they, like, want to yeah, go help get other people, you know. Yeah. So she did make a statement. She said, quote, in our case, we'll never know what the killer was thinking. We'll never learn any of the whys of his actions. And that's just where we sit today, end quote. She also thanks investigators, saying, quote, out of the dark and into the light, for some of us, no closure has ever taken place and the horrors are lived on a daily basis. Obviously, this just came out yesterday. I do know that Peggy's dad has passed away since he's, I, I'm not sure about the rest of the family members or the other parents of these people. I don't know if they're still alive. Mm-hmm. I know that it's it's a win-lose situation, obviously a loss. They all suffered a loss. But at the same time, you know, knowing that your loved one's killer is no longer here, but also having to face the fact that you will never get to ask why or you will never see him face persecution for what he did Mm -hmm. um it's just sad so do you have any questions well my question my the question that came up was about her daughter but now i know about her daughter um i don't have any questions right now i'm glad that they found out who it was i know a lot of times crimes like that never get solved or Mm -hmm. haven't yet i guess i should say let's keep the possibility open Mm -hmm. but they haven't been solved yet, so it's kind of cool to me that they were able to finally solve it after so much time. I did not expect you to say that. I absolutely did not expect you to say it was yesterday. solved yesterday. Yeah. I mean, we've been kind of talking about, like, ten years ago they were able to do it, or five years ago, or whatever. Um, But I guess I had... And you say a lot, like, don't lose hope because mm-hmm. we have this technology... And I guess I was just a little bit pessimistic because I was like, well, we already have this technology. So if they were going to find them, they would have found them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think there's probably just so many that they're trying to wade through. Yeah. I will say what did throw me off a little bit is in the the one where they got his fingerprints and they said they didn't match anything. That kind of throws me off because I know they fingerprint people before they go to jail. And Mm -hmm. he was in prison. So I don't know if maybe the that that was the one thing that caught off caught me off. Not caught or me off the, guard. Were the fingerprints in Kentucky? Because maybe the fingerprints only stay within the state. That that would make sense. You know? I don't yeah. know. It didn't say anything. It was actually really hard to find actual information on this case. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and We're going to probably be the information on this case. Well, and that's because, like, it's like when I typed it in, like, you know, to, like, look up things... It was basically, like, all, like, from, like, three hours ago, 20 hours ago, mm-hmm. five hours ago. Like, they caught the guy, they caught the guy, they caught the guy, and it's, like, I'm looking for the whole story. There, the person that I use mainly for references was, like, an investigator that literally went to these towns and, like, talked to the people. So, I definitely recommend checking out their work. Mm-hmm. It will obviously, all the references are linked in the description, but, yeah, I hope that this is... Just this is proof of what Jill says. Right. Don't give up hope. <laughs> I know. And we're still hope, holding out for baby Jane Doe in St. Louis. Yeah. So, so um, with all of that being said, this is the, and another thing that was so 
I'm just gonna add this before we end. Another thing that was so weird was when I was going through all of these, even the ones that were written in like 2018 or something, all of them had the the sketches and they were all like, you know, we're still looking for this person. This person's still on the loose and it's like, not anymore. I can't <laughs> wait for you guys to update these. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So that is the now recently, as of yesterday, solved case of the I-65 killer. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that was a really good story. I wonder how many more crimes they'll be able to connect to it. I know that in some of the articles, they had, obviously, this was way before they even knew who the person was. Mm-hmm. They had, one of the people writing one of the articles had suspected that they may be connected to other ones, but there was no definite information on whether or not that was true, but that could maybe yeah. be some of the Midwest ones that they're looking into now. I mean, apparently, the day's in. I don't know. And I will say that if they do find other crimes that like murders that he was connected to um obviously it'll probably take some time but i'm definitely down to do an updated episode yeah that'd be cool yeah so well thanks for getting us the information as quick as possible that was pretty cool thank you anyway you can find our podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify google podcast stitcher and you can follow us on tiktok instagram and facebook it was so funny. I just, last week's episode, you're like, please follow us on Facebook. Please follow us. Join our Facebook group. I know. I was listening to that too. And I was like, okay, I needed to calm down a little bit. So that's why this week I just simply told you, you could if you wanted to. She's very excited about you joining everything. I guess. I don't know. I don't know what it was. That was just, I was very pumped up last week. But at any rate, we will be back together next Thursday for another episode. I think that's it. All right, bye. Bye.